Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You're about to hear a recording of a live radio program. It's called Indivisible. You can listen live and call in four nights a week on public radio stations around the country or at indivisibleradio.com. You can also join the conversation with hashtag indivisibleradio or leave us a voicemail at indivisibleradio.com. Subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. Okay, here's the show. This is Indivisible, public radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. From WNYC Radio in New York, I'm Charlie Sykes. And, you know, the show is called Indivisible, but, but I want to start off by, by being honest about that because we, we may all be in this together, but this is a very, very divided nation. And I think we saw that starkly last weekend. On on Friday, Washington was filled with people wearing those red baseball caps. And on Saturday, millions of women marched around the country in pink hats. So so this this country is divided, and it's real. It's it's emotional. It's intense. You have to balance out people who are actually uh, optimistic about making America great again with folks who regard all of this with uh, genuine fear and loathing. In, in, In Pittsburgh, if you saw this story, it actually got so bad that a man bit off his roommate's ear during a debate they were having over Donald Trump. And I'm, I'm really hoping that that's not going to be happening here tonight. But uh, by, nature, by nature, I am an optimist. But I have to say, you know, at least in the short run, I don't think this is going to get better unless we start talking about these things. So, you know, let's, let's just dive into what we've seen in the last five, the first, the first five days of the Trump administration. We have been introduced to something called alternative facts. George Orwell's 1984 has become a surprised bestseller again. Uh, A lot of us realize that uh, Trump needs to be taken both literally and seriously. He is going ahead. He's cracking down on sanctuary cities, building that big, beautiful wall, which is not going to be a wall. Nobody really knows where the money's going to come from. Trust me, Mexico's not going to pay for it. Uh, President's revived a pipeline. He's issued orders that may or may not dismantle Obamacare. He's getting ready to name a new justice to the United States Supreme Court and... As the leader of the free world, he keeps tweeting about TV ratings and crowd sizes and making ludicrously untrue statements about the extent of voter fraud, and it is only Wednesday. Now, this is the third installment of Indivisible, which is, which is Public Radio's new live national call-in show. Four nights a week, four different hosts are taking your calls about life during the first 100 days of the Trump administration. And I'm going to be heading up Wednesday nights, and I really want to hear from you. So call us at... Uh, 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. Or tweet using the hashtag Invisible Radio. So I suppose I I ought to introduce myself. Um, You could say that I am a stranger in a strange land. I'm from Milwaukee, but I'm broadcasting live here from Manhattan from the studios of WNYC. And I'm probably one of the most uh, unusual political beasts around these days. Uh, I'm a conservative contrarian or a contrarian conservative, however you like that. And that's it, that, what that means is that I'm still an actual conservative, yeah, a conservative on public radio. I'm a conservative who believes in things like freedom and limited government and constitutionalism, but I'm not part of what the conservative movement has become. And I think you're going to get uh, my, the sense over the next 14 weeks about how I feel about Donald Trump. But weak contrarian conservatives... We are a very, very lonely band of brothers and sisters these days, but I I think a very important one, especially if uh, we're ever going to break out of these alternative reality silos that we've all been in. So 
One of the questions that I want to talk to you about, and I'd like you to join in with us, is, you know, what now for conservatives or Republicans, even Republicans who might have voted for Donald Trump? You know, what do we do now if we're not going to get on the, the, the Trump train? What role do these independent conservatives play? Will Republicans ever draw the line? Will they ever stand up to Donald Trump? And how important is that? And again, our number is 844-745-TALK. Now, we're going to be doing this for the next 14 weeks, and uh, we're going to disagree. We will disagree about a number of things. But I also think, and I'm hoping, that we're going to find some some common ground or at least a chance to understand one another just a little bit better. And what I want and I'm really hoping for is to have uh, respectful conversations where we can challenge each other's ideas, but let's not make it ad hominem. Uh, And I think this is one of the things that we've lost in American politics, that people may be wrong or they may be misinformed without actually being evil. So let's just try to disagree without being disagreeable. And, I, and may, maybe that's still possible in Donald Trump's America, although that's a premise that we're going to be testing over the next 100 days. So I, I literally could not think of a better way to start this conversation um, other than with our first guest for at least 30 years, probably more than that. I, I have admired George Will. I've read his columns. I've read his books. And I have to say that he's really shaped my own belief systems, my approach to ideas. And for, for years and years and years, I describe myself as a recovering liberal. And, and he's one of the reasons that I was recovering. But over the last year, year and a half, he's really been a lifeline for me by taking a strong and eloquent and principled stand as a conservative, as a man of the right against the Trumpian takeover. And I think it's a, it's a sign of the times, a rather extraordinary sign of the times, that the dean of American conservative thought finds himself in an exile of sorts today from the conservative movement and is a guest on public radio. And joining me now on the line is Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist George Will. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm fine. It's 44 years I've been doing this. Oh, I know, and I've been probably... Let me tell you a story, uh, (laughs) because my career has come full circle. I became a columnist in January 1970, and I was brought into the columnizing business by the Washington Post because op-ed page editors around the country were clamoring for Republicans to defend the Nixon administration. Wonderful. So Pat Buchanan, Bill Sapphire, and I all started columns at the same time. So the first thing I had to deal with was Watergate. (laughs) And I decided very early, and it turns out correctly, that uh, there was, A, a serious crime wave, and B, the president knew about it, and C, he was doomed. So here I started as a columnist on the outside of my party, and 44 years later, I'm back where I started. You're on the outside again. Well, let, let's just start with the first five days, the inauguration. Uh, you uh, you watched uh, President Trump's inauguration and described it as the most dreadful inaugural address in history. What, what, well, what's, it, what struck you that way? Look, it was, a, it was a good campaign address. It obviously worked for him, but it was a campaign address, which means he had no sense, and you wouldn't really expect him to have, of the venue or the moment. An inaugural address is not supposed to be an appeal to the base that got you there. It's supposed to be where you say, I'm now president of a large, complicated country and will behave as such. And um, that dystopian vision of America as typified by carnage 
look, there is carnage in America, as he's pointed out in the last day or so on the south and west sides of Chicago. But realistically, we are a prosperous, temperate, successful constitutional republic with problems. And it matters how you talk about these things. If you tell people that we are a fundamentally sick society, these things tend to become self-fulfilling. Well, I want to talk about uh, you know the the difference between what Donald Trump represents and conservatism, but but I I think one of the signature moments of the the beginning of this administration was uh, Kellyanne Conway's comments about uh, alternative uh, facts, which I'm sure you've heard. Let me just play this. You did yes, not answer did. the question of why the president asked the White House press secretary to come out in front of the podium for the first time and utter a falsehood. Why did he do that? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, it on doesn't. day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains alternative that there's... Facts? Alternative facts, four of the five facts he uttered. The hey, one Chuck, thing he why, got hey, right Chuck. was Zeke Miller. Four of the five facts he uttered were just not true. Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. So, George, Will, we uh, are, are seeing at least one positive uh, bit of fallout from uh, the first uh, five days of the Trump administration that uh, uh, the book 1984 is once again a bestseller list. So do, do facts matter? And why do well, they matter? They do, they do if you think there are facts. Mm -hmm. The funny thing is here, there's a convergence between Donald Trump and the left-wing postmodern academic culture of the country wherein Nietzsche is celebrated for his famous statement, there are no facts, only interpretations. And I fully expect Nietzsche to be quoted from the White House press briefing room someday soon by one of Mr. Trump's enablers. The question is, uh, do, do we trust evidence? Do we, before we make statements, have data? One of the things conservatives are supposed to be is grounded in reality, facers of facts. And that means that conservatives very often have to turn to the country and say dispiriting, gloomy, difficult things like the fact that our entitlement system is buckling under the weight of unfulfillable promises, because things like that. Because reality matters. Reality matters and arithmetic matters and all the rest. So when, when they say, when Mr. Spicer was asked to defend the president's facially preposterous assertion that three to five million illegal votes were cast, most of them against him, Mr. Spicer said, well, that's the president's longtime belief. Yes. As though the epistemology here is something's true if you believe it for a long time. Well, that's just not the way the world works. Yeah, we have actually, we have actually gone beyond whether it's true or false. It, it's really almost a, a challenge to whether or not there is such a thing as truth. I, 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 you may have seen this, uh, this quote from uh, the, the chess master, Gary Kasparov, who says, The point of modern propaganda is not only to misinform or push an agenda. It is to exhaust your critical thinking to annihilate truth. And, and that really struck me. Is, is that we're actually now moving into this sort of post-modernist world where what is truth? People shrug. Maybe truth is simply unknowable. And this administration is waging a war on that. Exactly. And as I say, this is, this is something that has leaked out of the left-wing academy in this country into right-wing politics in the form of, if we're counting Mr. Trump as right-wing, certainly into Republican politics now. 
and it, it induces a kind of vertigo. Uh, again, I'm, I'm Charlie Sykes. This is Indivisible. We're talking with a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, uh, George Will. Now, you have been, you have not uh, wavered at all in your criticism of, of Donald Trump, your, your reaction to his inauguration. Do you think, honestly, did, did that have something to do with uh, Fox's decision that they wanted to move on from you, not renew your contract? Are you, are you paying a price for not towing the designated conservative movement line now? I don't know. I'm I'm not in uh, the martyr business here. Uh, Fox News uh, decided not to renew my contract. They didn't say why, and I didn't ask. But I saw this coming last July when I was not asked to go to the as part of their coverage to the Republican convention in Cleveland. Being denied the delights of Cleveland in July, uh, I took that in stride, and uh, I'll move on. Uh, it, Fox has its. Uh, preferences, and, and I'm in no ways entitled to be on Fox. I'm against all, most entitlement systems. Well, let me, let me ask you the, the, this, this larger question, because I think a lot of the people who are listening to us now you know, are, are wondering wh- wh- why you, know, you conservatives are you're trying to distance yourself. But, but in, and their point would be, perhaps, is that this is a logical outcome, that Donald Trump is, in fact, a logical outcome of the last 40 or 50 years of conservatism. I, is he really the product? Did we build this? Is this where the conservative movement, what it has been saying and doing, did it all lead up to this moment of Donald Trump? Absolutely not. Donald Trump is the is the consequence of uh, a progressivism that extends a faceless, meddling, incompetent, arrogant government over people who don't want that. The conservatism that I joined with casting my first presidential vote at the age of, I guess, 22, 23 it was, for Barry Goldwater in 1964, talked about the rule of law limited government, a certain modesty about the proper scope and actual competence of government, this is entirely different. In, in fact, there was almost none of those themes that you could have detected anywhere in, in that speech. No, no sense of limiting government, no sense of real respect for uh, the, the Constitution, and certainly no sense, uh, no sense of, of modesty. So in the last five days or so, what is anything that really surprised you? Did anything surprise you in this first week of the Trump administration? Well, I, I was terrifically surprised by the fact that the president's indiscipline sent him off on this tangent about the three to five million illegal votes. Uh, I was surprised that he had sent his press secretary out to do what the press secretary was, to his credit, obviously uncomfortable doing, which was defending the indefensible. Uh, but beyond that, no, I, I think the president's doing things he said he would do and that should have been done, advancing the Keystone Pipeline and all the rest. So we're, we're a long way from the rubber meeting the road, which will happen when they figure out what to do about Obamacare. That's the central claim that Republicans have been making for eight years now, which is that they would repeal and replace Obamacare. The repeal is on the way, but they now know they can't do it until they have a replacement in in place. So the the government gets granular at this point. It gets detail-oriented, and it slows down. Turning the American government is like turning a supertanker in the middle of the ocean. It takes a vast swath of ocean and a lot of time to turn it around. What what will it say about the conservative movement, particularly, say, the Tea Party movement, which campaigned so strongly against President Obama's stimulus package, if the conservatives in Congress now turn around and embrace the 
Trump stimulus package, which looks suspiciously like the Obama stimulus package. Well, it's very interesting because the president says the following. He's going to reduce the deficit. He's going to cut taxes by perhaps $6 trillion net. That's even with dynamic scoring, crediting the tax cuts with some stimulative effect. He's going to cut taxes by uh, a $6 trillion revenue loss over the next decade. He's going to have a trillion-dollar infrastructure program paid for maybe largely by private sector money drawn into this. I hope that works. And he's not going to meddle, an interesting choice of words by Reince Priebus last night, he's Mm -hmm. not going to meddle with Social Security or Medicare. Whereas everyone knows we're now in the seventh year of the most predictable crisis in American history. That is the coming insolvency of the entitlement systems because we've made promises to ourselves that we can't keep with the current structure of those programs. I say seven in the seventh year because the crisis really began on the 1st of January 2008 when the first of 77 million baby boomers began to retire. Every day, 10,000 more baby boomers become eligible for Social Security and Medicare. We know the programs as currently structured are unsustainable. And he campaigned, the Republican presidential candidate campaigned on a promise not to do anything about this. Well, I want to talk about that. In fact, the last time that you and I spoke, uh, you you made the point that one of the things we learned this year is that uh, there weren't as many of uh, those of us who are fiscal conservatives as we perhaps thought we were, and uh, that that perhaps our our tribal politics has become so intense now that it really doesn't matter what you stand for as long as your your team wins. Now we have we have a lot of callers on 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 the line actually from from all from all over the country, and I want to get to them um, after after the break. And I also, you know, um, one one of the big questions that I have in my mind is is, you know, will the Republicans push back? Will there be a principled conservative opposition? Because, you know, before the election, we heard a lot of people saying this is a binary choice. Okay, we know all these terrible things about uh, Donald Trump, but, but at least he's not Hillary Clinton. But, but once he becomes elected, that's when we will hold him accountable. And um, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly getting the sense that this, this gravitational pull of party loyalty is becoming very, very intense. So, you know, in a little while, what I do, what I do want to do is, is ask that. But, you know, do you sense any willingness right now on, of Republicans in Congress to stand up to, to Donald Trump? I do. I think you're going to see it uh, when uh, it comes time to deal with the tax losses when you repeal Obamacare, when you deal with his agenda for increased defense okay. spending, All right. and when they begin to look for ways to make this revenue neutral, you're going to see the conservative caucus in the House will refine its voice. Well, I, I certainly hope so. We will be back in just uh, in just a couple of moments. This, this is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. I'm Charlie Sykes. We're taking your calls. 844-745-TALK. And we'll be right back with more from George Will after this break. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories, stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. 
of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. This is Charlie Sykes at WNYC in New York, and we are back with George Will. We were talking about uh, the conservative movement and whether or not uh, con- Republicans in Congress will ever stand up. Let's, let, let's take a couple of calls if you're all right with that, uh, Mr. Will. Uh, let's go, in fact, let's go south. Uh, let's go to Bill from uh, Auburn, Alabama. You are on uh, Indivisible. I'm Charlie Sykes with uh, George Will. Hi, thank you, George. I used to enjoy your column in my local paper, and then one day I noticed it wasn't there, and I, I read several newspapers, and uh, you had said something about concussions in football, and Auburn being a you know sports fanatic place, uh, <laughs> Uh, they eventually seem to just uh, cut you out altogether from my local paper. But I've also noticed, uh, you know how football is big down south, and Bear Bryant is like a god. Uh, he was quoted in a book by Walter Byers, uh, uh, his memoir. Walter Byers ran the NCAA for 36 years. And our library does not have that book, even though we're so proud of sports and the I've called around, and that book doesn't seem to exist in a lot of big-time college football uh, programs, and it's unfortunate because— Okay, Bill, kind of, I, want to kind of, I want to kind of focus you in here. We're, we're talking about the, the first 100 days of Donald Trump. Do you have a question for Mr. Will? Well, it just seems like a dystopian where facts are hidden, yeah. and, and, and when people do tell the truth, you know, even, even if it's not, you know, so harmful, uh, that is not getting to the people here, and, and you know— like uh, uh, Ravi Zacharias, a, a, a Christian apologist, said, truth is uh, exclusive, but it doesn't seem to be anymore. It's excluded. Okay. Anyway, thank you. Yeah. Bill, you know, um, Mr. Bill, you know, part of the problem is these alternative reality silos that we create. You, you really can wall yourself off from all sorts of information. I mean, it, it is now possible, and, and, I, and I think that Donald Trump actually understands this, that you can create a, your own media ecosystem in which your supporters only hear ideas and thoughts and issues that you want them to hear, and a lot of information and quote-unquote truth will never even penetrate. That's right. The danger of siloing, as you properly put it, is real. But let's remember this. In 1980, about the year, I think that's the year CNN was created, 80% of all the television sets in use at the dinner hour were turned to ABC, NBC, and CBS, and it was homogenized. They were very similar. That national campfire around which we all gathered has now been dispersed, and we have this cornucopia of options pouring out of the Internet. And on television, MSNBC, CNN, uh, CNBC, but Fox. this is a good thing, right? I mean, this is the of democratization. Of course it's a good thing. Yes. Look, well, of course it's a good thing. It can have the bad consequence that you are rightly mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about, which is that people then self-select to go only to those channels that tell them what they are comfortable hearing. That's a problem. But I, on balance, I prefer the problems of pluralism to the problems of the oligopoly that we had on the networks 
in 1980. Yeah, it, it does require some, some degree of intellectual honesty on the part of some of our former <coughs> friends. Though. Let's go back to the phone. Let's go to Mark from Long Island. Mark, you aren't indivisible with Charlie Sykes and George Will. Mark. Hello. Good evening. Yes. Am I on? Yes, you are. Oh, sorry about that. I just had a uh, quick question for uh, George in terms of uh, is the term conservative and Republican being conflated? Because a lot of Republicans, I'm not so sure, are very conservative. I know or my opinion is that Mr. Trump is not very conservative in a lot of ways. Some of his nominees, um, I don't remember the gentleman's name, but I looked at the commerce gentleman and, you know, kind of I would have put him in the class of a crony capitalist. Well, so when we look at our you're talking about Mr. Ross, and Mr. Ross has said that he admires the Chinese for having five-year plans. He has said that we should should try to emulate that. He's called for an industrial policy, which is a slogan of the American left for 50 years. So there's no question that uh, that uh, he's a crony capitalist. The, you're, you're, your quite sensible question is about the conflation of the Republican and conservative labels. They've been joined for many years. I think they've now come apart. I uh, left the Republican Party in uh, June, when, last June, when I saw that the Republican leaders were all going over to a man, Mr. Trump, who was really renting the Republican Party, who had no particular allegiance to the Republican Party, who said at one point, remember, this is called the Republican Party, not the conservative party, as his way of moving it toward a large government, president-centric, Congress-marginalized kind of uh, muscular government that we normally associate with progressivism. You know, one of the things that uh, that it did occur to me, though, is is this is this is going to be a very very complicated time for those of us who are contrarian conservatives because there will be things that he does that we will like. And there will be things, you know, that, that our friends and that, that our allies are going to be involved in. And then there are going to be things that are going to be absolutely horrific. And uh, so I would, I would actually even argue that it's going to be tougher to be an independent conservative than it is to be in opposition. If you're in opposition, you're just against everything. But, right. you know, you and I are probably going to agree with the, the appointment that he's going to make to the U.S. Supreme Court, although be horrified by what he might do the next day. Well, it, we have a party system in this country. We have had since the middle of the 1790s, and certainly since the great election of 1800. That meant that although Mr. Trump's attachment to the Republican Party was brief and opportunistic, when he won the presidency, he woke up the next morning and he had to fill about 4,000 policymaking jobs down to the secretary, deputy secretary, and assistant secretary level throughout the government. And he had to turn to the Republican Party with its pool of talent. And that pool of talent, nourished by the, the think tanks, Cato, Heritage, AEI, all the rest, that have developed by conservatives as an alternative to the academia resource that the Democrats have entirely on their side. And it turns out... When he dipped into that pool, he came up with very good people indeed. It will be impossible for him, in, from my judgment as a constitutionalist, for him to pick a bad candidate for the Supreme Court because we know from his list of 21, which he got from the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, 
that they're all the kind of people we want. So whether or not he was a serious party person, he is enveloped by the American party system, and the Republican Party will will provide the personnel. There's an old axiom in Washington that personnel is policy, and the personnel are coming from the, that Republican pool of talent. Okay, that's good. I think we can slip in another call here, uh, Mr. Will. Uh, Ron from Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, Ron, uh, you're, you're on the air. Good evening. Good evening. Hi. Really nice to talk with both of you. Um, a few things I'll toss out, and if George wants to comment on them, I'd be happy to listen to. First, I certainly don't think that Trump is a conservative. Um, I also feel in regards to his inauguration speech, I just think he was throwing bones to the folks that got him in, his supporters, knowing probably full well that he's not going to get half the things done or accomplished that he had hoped to, and that perhaps when we get down the line, he'll say, well, I tried, but, you know, Congress, the Senate, et cetera, might assign blame to them. And then, you know, if he does run for reelection, he'll say, look, I was able to get X, Y, and Z done. We'll try and get these other things done. Um, He's an entertainer. He knows how to make people feel good. That's what they do. But in reality, I think he's more a opportunist uh, versus an ideologue. Um, And uh, so I don't know. I I just don't feel an allegiance to him or any any of the political parties anymore at 49 years of age. Um, I've become a very non-trusting individual, and that's very sad to say. Um, but uh, become a skeptic. This is where we find ourselves. Thanks, Ron. Well, if he, if he runs for re-election saying these obstructionists in Washington are terrible, he's going to be saying the obstructionists are Republicans because the Republicans are very apt to hold the House in the 2018 election, and the Democrats are defending 20-some Senate seats as opposed to only eight Republicans, mm-hmm. and some of the Democratic Senate seats are in states that Trump carried with landslides. So he really cannot blame the fact that he doesn't get his program passed. But beyond that, his presidential programs don't move this country. Presidents don't create jobs. Presidents don't run the economy. We talk that way. And our presidential focus, partly because the media is focused with its cameras on this individual, tends to distort reality. The fact is... In 2020, after four years of Donald Trump, the unemployment and the devastation of Denora, Pennsylvania, and the rest of the Monongahela Valley is going to be pretty much what it is today. It Hmm. just is. And the problem of family disintegration in the United States, where 30% of all mothers, uh, 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 sorry, a, a majority of mothers under 30 are not living with the fathers of their children, that's not going to change. Yes, and these and, are deep structural, cultural problems. And, and the strong man on the white horse doesn't change it. Okay, we think we have one more call in. Floyd from uh, Atomwa. Is it Atomwa, Iowa? Yes, it uh, is Atomwa, Iowa. Uh, you know, Floyd. I want to get yeah. uh, Mr. Will's thoughts on this. That wall that he's talking about building on the southwest border is going to be the biggest waste of money you ever seen in the history of the United States. What we need down there is not a static defense, not a static wall. We need a dynamic defense there. As anyone knows, these people just climb over a wall or tunnel under the wall. Floyd, Floyd, who did you vote for? Uh, uh, The president, uh, President uh, Trump now. But I'll tell you what, that wall business is a big mistake. You voted voted for Trump even though you didn't buy the whole big, beautiful wall that Mexico is going to pay for thing. You know that's not going to happen. You know, what did he say just today? We're going to have to backtrack and have the U.S. taxpayer pay for that. But uh, let me tell you something. Give me an alternative. The thing to put down uh, there, a dynamic defense, is the National Guard. 
I can tell the man from Ottumwa, Iowa, that I'm from Champaign, Illinois, and I love Midwestern common sense when I hear it. We know that of the 11 point whatever illegal immigrants in the United States, 40% of them didn't wait across the Rio Grande. They landed at JFK in New York and LAX in Los Angeles and other airports and overstayed their visas. So the idea that a physical barrier is the, is the sovereign cure for illegal immigration is, is nonsense. Second, we're now in, I think, our seventh consecutive year of net out-migration of Mexicans from the United States as the Mexican economy improves, indeed as the Mexican economy grows faster than the United States economy. You want to reduce immigration, don't build a wall, help the Mexican economy grow, which means don't try to overturn NAFTA. That's the, the self-defeating nature of some of these programs is astonishing. It is, it is we astonishing. should be rooting for the growth of the Mexican economy so Mexicans will want to stay in Mexico. You know, we, we, we have to leave it there. Uh, Mr. Will, thanks once again. I appreciate so much uh, you joining us and uh, joining with me uh, on, on, the, uh, on our debut, uh, my debut here on uh, Indivisible. And uh, so let's uh, definitely please keep in touch. There's, well, there's not many of us left, you know. It's a privilege to be with you on uh, what I hope will be a long run. Your, your talk radio has a bad reputation, some of it earned, <laughs> but you're, uh, you're an ornament to that medium. George Will, thanks so much. Thank you. And let's uh, let's move on because we've been talking about the economy, and uh, because I, I do think that well, and today, of course, we have we have to mark you know mark this on your calendar. This is the first day that the Dow Jones actually broke twenty thousand. Uh, and uh, joining me on our line uh, is uh, is Tim Carney, who is uh, the commentary editor at the Washington Examiner and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for joining me tonight. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to talk about this because, you know, you wrote a book, one of my, uh, my favorite books, about uh, what you called Obamanomics. Um, do we have a sense yet of what Trumponomics is going to look like? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think if you wanted to figure it out, you would have to look at the Carrier deal, where before he was even president, he brought in his vice president and outgoing Indiana Governor Mike Pence for a combination of sort of uh, shakedown and handout to, to keep a thousand jobs in play there. Um, a lot of other talk. So it seems that what I would, the term I used for Obama was corporatism, mm -hmm. sort of building a big infrastructure where government's more involved. And I argue that that benefited the big guys and hurt the little guys. Obama, uh, Trump's view is not as grand. I think he does have people he's uh, he's picked who do have big grand corporatist views, and a lot of people who have big uh, free enterprise views. I think Trump is is much more small bore in his things. That he'll see a company and say, "I'm going to get that company and to stay," and then four years later he'll be running on that one company rather than some large uh, sort of sweeping view of the economy. Yeah, I mean this really comes down to it. I mean I think, and I want to pose the this question to the audience as well. I mean. Do you honestly think that Donald? Do you think that Donald Trump will turn the economy around, and will this boom actually last? And the reason why I think that's important, um, I, I do think that in American politics, it does come down often to the economy. If he gets the economy right, yeah. I think it's going to be very, very tough uh, to, uh, to to turn directions. On the other hand, if he's not able to turn the economy around, it's hard to imagine him being a successful president. 
I could see him doing a few things that could really harm the economy. When I uh, referred to some of his, his picks, his appointees, I wrote a column at the Examiner on uh, on Wilbur Ross, who's a Commerce Secretary. He came pick. up already, yeah. Uh, Secretary of Commerce is not uh, typically a very powerful position, but things could be rejiggered. Wilbur Ross has sung the praises of China's five-year plans, has said uh, he's got that view that some businessmen have, oh, well, the country should be run more like a business where the CEO doesn't just let the money flow where it might to whatever sectors of the company. A smart CEO plans it. So Wilbur Ross believes in planning of the economy. His criticism of Obama's stimulus wasn't that Obama was picking winners and losers, is that he wasn't putting enough money behind his chosen winners. Um, that, I think, could really hurt the economy if uh, the Trump uh, administration decides, all right, we're going to pour a ton of money into this sector that, you know, we're going to make yeah. sure that there's some factories in this specific Monongahela Valley producing the same seal they produced 30 years before. I think that's the sort of thing that could really distort the economy, drag resources away from where the market would allocate it and hurt it. I'm not sure but that... the stock market seems to like it right now. We are, we are at 20,000. I mean, are, are, are they betting on are they betting on the cuts in regulations? Are they betting on the, the cuts in taxes? Um, what, yeah, I mean, what, uh, what has got the animal uh, spirits running? I would guess a unified Republican government that could actually pull off some sort of tax and regulatory reform. You've got Republicans with the House, the Senate, um, a lot of tax reform type stuff you can do with reconciliation. So if they have, if we, one of the biggest obstacles, and Trump says this correctly, is tax complexity and high corporate tax rates, uh, a more simple tax code with lower rates would have sort of a triple benefit for the economy. Republicans haven't been able to pull that off because Democrats have controlled at least one branch of it for the last uh, for the last decade. And you also look at the regulations. Trump has surrounded himself with a lot of smart lawyers who have good plans for undoing some of uh, some of Obama's regulations, like this overtime rule that can yes. really hurt companies, like uh, the Clean Power Plan. And so these are places where just. Uh, the way I would describe it is Trump has had to sort of outsource where he's not an expert, and in some of these places he's outsourced to really strong conservatives. And if he's letting uh, Paul Ryan and uh, and uh, Kevin Brady, the Ways and Means chairman in the House, if he's letting them champ, uh, lead tax reform and he'll push it through, and then letting these lawyers write the, the, the regulatory reform and then he'll push that through, that could really, I think, drive a, a, a long-term boom, and the market would, in the short term, uh, really appreciate that. Yeah, and, but the one thing that the market doesn't like is they don't like uncertainty, and we certainly are living in an era of maximum, <laughs> maximum uncertainty. You're listening to Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of rather extraordinary change. I'm Charlie Sykes. We're talking with Tim Carney. He's the commentary editor of the Washington Examiner, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And we're taking your calls at 844-745-TALK. That's 844 8255. One of the questions I want you to address is: Is, is do you think that Don, do you think that Donald Trump can put America back to work again? Can he can he turn the economy around? Will this last? We will be right back with more after the break. This is Indivisible, Public Radio's national conversation about America in a time of change. 
This is Charlie Sykes broadcasting from WNYC in New York. I'm talking with Tim Carney, the commentary editor at the Washington Examiner and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Our number is 844-745-TALK. Uh, you can also tweet to us at the hashtag Indivisible Radio. Uh, maybe you can help me with, uh, with, with this, Tim. I'm really trying to figure out what uh, Obama is doing on, on trade. Uh, you know, whether he's— You mean Trump. I'm, I'm sorry. Boy, <laughs> you know what? See, the, the, now there is, a, there is a Freudian slip here. Maybe, or maybe, yeah. I was just, maybe I was just giving you an alternative uh, uh, fact. The, the, the difference between border taxes and tariffs. Is, is, is Donald Trump going to be able to convince Congress to enact punitive tariffs aimed at punishing certain individual companies? Is that going to happen? Is that a non-starter? And I'm glad that you're sort of making that distinction. Um, we we have tariffs. We have tariffs even with the the UK and some of these. You know where we have free trade agreements. There are tariffs where we tax goods that cross the border, and they're not across the board. But usually, it's all goods in this category get a five percent, and this category are exempt, and this category gets ten percent. What we don't have is if. Uh, Lockheed Martin or if Boeing makes something in China and sells it to us, well, just Boeing gets uh, a 45 percent tariff. And that's what Trump was talking about with Carrier, with General Electric, with manufacturers who are specifically talking about moving overseas, saying we are going to slap a tariff on you. The odds of Congress just simply wouldn't go along with that, I think. that the uh, Democrats at times have talked about punishing companies, passing a law that sort of automatically would punish a company that goes overseas, and Republicans have have knocked that down as as like communist, Stalinist. Um, but what Trump's talking about is even more extreme than that. It's not saying this is a law; it's saying we're going to slap a tariff just on you. Yeah, we're going to make forty-five percent. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Let's go to the phones here. Uh, Roger from Columbus, Ohio. You're on Indivisible with Charlie Sykes and Tim Carney. Hi. I actually have uh, one comment on the economy and a couple of comments on the George Will segment. Uh, I think that Trump can only help the economy if he does, and the Congress does, policies that have long been advocated by Democrats. For instance, the employing Americans by rebuilding our infrastructure and raising wages so that American people can spend more and and therefore stimulate the economy, and raising taxes on the very wealthy, including maybe on the less wealthy, and I'd be willing to pay more taxes in order to finance that. I think that's what will happen after maybe there will be a temporary bump with the stock market. But in the long term, I think those are the things you have to do. Do you think, you, 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 Tim, you see a, a tax increase? I think that uh, Trump will try to make any tax reform he does uh, revenue neutral, and that that's all, that's a point of dogma among uh, Republicans. And that if you're going to get rid of exemptions, we're going to lower rates, and then if you're going to raise rates, um, you know, on the on the wealthy, it's going to come with some other cut somewhere else. I'm I'm just trying to figure out what's going to happen with the deficit uh, as, as as a conservative. I, I remember when we cared about that about five minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> let's go to uh, let's go to Indianapolis. Uh, Joshua from Indianapolis, uh, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Yes, hi. Uh, good evening. Uh, thank. Uh, one quick uh, comment uh, that your uh, that your guest mentioned just a couple of minutes ago regarding um, some of the targeted uh, border taxes that uh, Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, mentioned, you know, in specific regarding carrier, if they were to move some of their uh, 
operations to Mexico. That uh, there was a piece on NPR actually a, a day or two ago. Uh, I was listening to it on my way to work, and uh, he said just about the same. The gentleman said just about the same thing that your guest said that uh, it would be near impossible to actually implement those targeted um, tariffs. So I don't think that that's going to be possible in the in the future. Um, one of the things I did want to ask um, your, your guest and yourself uh, has to do with our trade policies with China. Um, I do think that we're probably going to get to some, maybe not a trade war with China, but I think there will be some sort of confrontation probably within the next couple of years. Uh, I just kind of wanted to uh, see if you guys had any opinions about that, uh, particularly how this trade war might uh, affect perhaps uh, America's interest in uh, the South China Sea and uh, confronting China over their— uh, Joshua, thank you. No, 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 Joshua is asking the, uh, the what, a 60, $68 billion question. You know, is, is this going to lead to a trade war? You know, I was, I was not a big fan of TPP, but the big winner in uh, the cancellation of TPP is China. So what do you see happening there, Tim, and, and what does that do to the global economy? No, I think that's the exact right point, that I would go and talk to people at USTR. Not many Obama officials sort of invited me in to, to talk to me, but the trade representative people would. And they almost were talking trade war against China as their way of promoting uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. And, and like you, I, you saw lots of pluses, lots of minuses in that treaty. But the idea was, if we establish stronger relations with these Asian countries, that uh, that mutes China's ability to establish themselves as sort of the, the economic sort of boss there. They're obviously the biggest fish, but if they want to – and China is very into state planning of the economy, as I said, and they could go ahead and subsidize some company, some countries to build some relationships, threaten punishments. If we want to stop China from becoming sort of an economic hegemon as its economy grows, the Obama administration's argument, and a lot of Republicans, is that's exactly why we need TPP. Yeah. Trump's rebuttal, though, is we could do one-at-a-time trade treaty with these uh, Asian countries. That's something that I think could be a sort of good blend of uh, free enterprise and Trumpism would be, let's start with the U.K. and do a trade treaty and then see, you know, do we need to do a treaty with just Japan and a treaty with just Vietnam and sort of one at a time do that. That could address the same plans without some of the mess of TPP. Uh, Tim, thanks uh, thanks for joining me again. We're going to leave, leave it there. We're going to have to have you back on when we actually find out what Trumponomics actually looks like. Uh, Tim, again, um, my pleasure having you on this uh, this evening. Thanks, Charlie. This is Indivisible. The number to call is 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255. This is Charlie Sykes uh, broadcasting live from WNYC. For the next 15 minutes, you know, let's, let's have an open line on, on a lot of these issues. Because I, I, I sense... There's still a lot of pent-up reaction to this. You know, the people who are thinking that we're going to make America great again, people who think that uh, this is the end of the world as we know it. So let's go back to the phones. And, and again, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to run the gamut, try to get as many calls in as we can and get around the country. Let's go to Nashville, Tennessee. Felicia from Nashville, you're on uh, Indivisible. Hi. Good evening. Hi. Hi. Great. Thanks for, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I just wanted to say, one, there— there are a lot of educated women who did vote for Trump, and I, and I am one of them. So although we're not often talked about in the media, we do exist. 
And I just wanted to say, you know, part of it is I, I'm optimistic about the future at, with Trump. Um, I, I do. I believe that he's going to surround himself with smart people. I think he's already made that clear. And I know I heard a couple of your um, your mm-hmm. your people that you had on, you know, that mentioned, you know, that he has surrounded himself with good people. And I think that's what a good leader does. And I think with the cohesion that we have with the Republican Congress and Trump, we can actually get some things going. So, you know, and I think that optimism is evident in the current stock market. You know, what we had happen today. I mean, that's that's great. I think people are feeling more of a sense of, hey, you know, at least at least we're going to have some forward progress. This is actually what, 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 what puzzles me a little bit about Donald Trump is I think he has an opportunity to make people, you know, his base feel op- you know, optimistic. It, it's the lack of discipline. It's the, it's, it's the way he steps on his story, you know, the way he will go off and, and tweet something that, uh, that, that sucks the air out of the room. Um, you know, and I also agree with, uh, with Felicia that, uh, you know, if you surround yourself with good people, you know, even a mediocre leader can be successful. The question is, if you surround yourself with good people, People, do you listen to them? Uh, this is from uh, from my own uh, backyard, uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin. Dave from uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin. Good evening. Thanks for calling in. Hey, Charlie. How are you doing? Appreciate it. Good. Good. Good to hear you back in the air again. Thank you. Um, uh, one of my big things is you just kind of hit on it a little bit um, is the fact that he his cabinet picks really you know, obviously being a never Trumper, and I've called you show many times, um, never Trumper. But I am, you know, pretty impressed with his cabinet picks. And he made one statement that, uh, in talking about one of them, I think it was, uh, that really kind of gave me pause and, and I guess some optimism mm-hmm. and whatnot, is the fact that he's not out to find clones. He's out to put people in there to make their own decisions and things like that. Now, whether or not he follows through, you know, that's a whole different matter. But it's this whole black and white public persona versus private persona. That's the part that scares me. I don't know which, if there's well, a gray. Yeah, well, that's it. And, and, and you don't know what you're, what you're going to get. And, and I think his appointments have been a mixed bag. I, I thought it was, uh, it, was, it was a defining appointment when he named Steve Bannon to be one of his top aides. And Steve Bannon you know, represents, uh, I think, some of, you know, the, the darker corners of, right, you know, the right, the, the, the right, right. you know. As but the, he's as, somewhat silent. As, I mean, he's really hasn't, I don't think he's well, taken as much of a front seat as most people thought he would have. We, we don't really know that yet. And, and I certainly sensed his fingerprints all over the American carnage speech. But again, he's there. And, you know, we, we, we uh, you know, it's interesting, those of us from, from Wisconsin, you know, Reince Ryan, Priebus, of course, is somebody that we, right. we, we knew very, very well is, is the chief of staff. And there's, you know, a lot of speculation about, you know, what is the rivalry going to be between Steve Bannon and, and Reince Priebus? And, you know, what's the relationship going to be with, with Paul Ryan? But so I, it, it is right now, I think you're having a little bit of jostling and jockeying for power. And the success of this presidency, I think, will be determined by how what the outcome of that jockeying is. Let's go up to uh, Maine. Let's go up to Cornish, Maine. Will, uh, you're on Indivisible. Good evening. Hi, uh, Charlie. Thank you. Uh, I'm going back to George, but uh, it all connects. Uh, I was fascinated by the words that were coming out of your conversation, Uh, words like epistemology, truth, logical outcome, rule of law, uh, of course, data, facts, reality. 
uh, alternative realities, does reality matter? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just went on. Um, my question for um, George would have been, and it's really a question to anyone that's concerned about where we are right now, uh, is it time to hold ourselves to a commonly held standard uh, definition and an understanding? Right. Yeah, you, you, know, where you can't have a conversation unless. Aren't. Yeah, you, you have to have. In order to have a conversation or even a disagreement, you have to have some sort of common ground or some common set of facts that you can agree upon. Correct. Yeah, where where you know uh, people are are just comfortable sorting out the spin, the slant, uh, the soft slander, you know the the charged words, and able to stand comfortably in a place where when we listen to our sources of all these things, you know, our knowledge, right. our information, our news, our data, all of these things, uh, we can comfortably say, oh, that's not just me. This is what's real. And then start to move from there and well, say, and, okay, and, well, if this is real, what do we do about it? Well, you're, you're right, and, and I think this is going to be one of the great challenges. Who, you know, how do we know what we know? Who do we trust any longer? What, what is valid information? Because we know there are people out there who are willing to traffic in propaganda, and uh, unfortunately, because we have these alternative reality bubbles, you know, false information can, you know, be, can be reinforced, which is why we had the false news problem. By the way, we ought to devote an entire show to the issue of false news. My argument about false news is as bad as false news is, it, it's the, the much more serious problem is the gullible electorate. Do you follow where I'm, I'm getting at here? Is, is that, yes, we're always going to have people who tell lies and, and put out bogus stories. What was troubling is, is the number of people who actually believe those, who actually believe those stories. Let's go to Caleb from Cincinnati. You're on the air. Hi. I, um, I think your show is great. I'm an independent, so, you know, I, I'm sort of kind of outside the, the polarizing politics. And I'm a Ph.D. student who uh, studies and teaches rhetoric at Miami Oxford here in Ohio, and I'm really concerned, my, my focus in my classroom is about literacy, about giving voice, and that's, I, that's why this program is amazing, by the way. I'm even thinking about teaching it. Um, my, my issue with Trump, I believe, you know, there's many. His vapid rhetoric, it's, it's, it's completely hollow. You know, these, these wishy wack back and forth. Um, what about looking at education to build jobs instead of saying we're just going to make jobs and not have any plan to put people in them. You know, it's, it's part of this sort of post-truth epoch that we're sort of encroaching on. And um, it's, it's all involved. It's, it's a No, no, of- and, and, and you make a great point. You know, when um, actually I had one interview with, with Donald Trump, and I was really trying to press him on, on how his policies would actually put people back to work. This whole notion that that foreign countries steal our jobs or these you know these people are coming into our country and they're stealing look it's much more complicated than that you know it it is the question of the educational system it is the question of the kinds of jobs created by the economy but um again i i think i i've emphasized this a lot this whole issue of post truth whether or not people really want solutions or whether they just want things that sound like solutions and i think there's a distinction there um 
Our phone number, um, when, once again, is 844-745-TALK. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm watching the, the t- uh, Twitter feedback, and I see somebody says, I'm never going to listen to Charlie Sykes again um, because 95% of the callers are conservative, not what I expected. Well, now, this is one of the things that, that I want you to just, just consider, is that one of the things in this show is that we are going to try to break through the silos, that we are going to try... Um, to to have different voices on this show. And the reality is that, yes, I am an anti-Trump conservative, but I am a, a conservative. And I do think that it's important to listen to what other people have to say. I think one of the things that's happened, one of the reasons why we have the alternative reality silos is because both of us, both on the left and the right, we want safe spaces. And we talk about safe spaces on campuses. I think people have decided that the radio and media and Fox News and MSNBC, and I'm a contributor of MSNBC, so I'm not dissing them. I'm going to be on there later tonight. Um, but, but these are the safe spaces. And that people don't want to hear ideas that might challenge our preconceptions, that might challenge our prejudices. And that, frankly, is, is kind of the point of the program, is, is that if, if at least you recognize what other people are saying, that, that not everybody who, has, who voted for the other candidate is, 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 uh, is, is necessarily a racist or a misogynist. Now, look, we, we're going to have – we have 14 weeks to work through all of this. And, and as a conservative, I think that there's a lot of questions – that we have to ask ourselves about how this happened and whether or not some of the criticism that we have heard in the past might be valid. But but I do think that I that I think that uh, um, I'm hoping that people will recognize that for at least an hour of the week that there's going to be a show here on public radio, and I'm very honored to be part of it. Where in fact uh, we're not going to be in that uh, the echo chamber. Now you have been listening to uh, Indivisible. This is the new public radio conversation. It will be airing four nights a week on stations all over the country. I think we are on more than 150 stations now for the first 100 days of this new administration. Now, tomorrow night, join Minnesota Public Radio's Carrie Miller. We'll talk with an anthropologist and a political consultant about the assumptions that people tend to make about what people believe based on where they live or how they voted and how to get past those assumptions. In the meantime, you can keep the conversation going at IndivisibleRadio.com. I'm Charlie Sykes, and assuming that the world is still here a week from now, I will be back next Wednesday.